Hello, I'm Bob Wittermute, and you're listening to the New Books and Military History channel of the New Books Network podcast. Today we're making a sea change, so to speak, as we turn our attention to a recent book on American naval policy and strategy. Institutional reform is a long-established topic for historians of the air and ground forces. Numerous books have been written about the impact of Emory Upton, the root reforms of the early 20th century, uh, the creation of American air power doctrine, but much less has been written about the growing professionalism and institutional transformation of the United States Navy. Save, of course, for those books assessing the role of Alfred Thayer Mahan in creating a raison d'etre for sea power. Today's guest goes far to address this gap. Scott Mobley is a former naval officer who has written Progressives in Navy Blue, Maritime Strategy, American Empire, and the Transformation of U.S. Naval Identity, 1873 to 1898, published by the Naval Institute Press. In the book, Scott addresses many open questions about the Navy's transition from sail and steam wooden vessels to full coal-powered iron pre-dreadnoughts. Most tellingly, though, he goes far to put Mahan in his proper context. That is to say, not as a lonely maverick bookworm, but as one of a growing number of intellectually forward officers who wish to promote the global reach of the United States through naval power. Scott, thanks for joining us at the New Books Network. Well, Bob, I'm delighted to be here. What prompted you to pursue this project? Well, I uh, when I retired from the Navy, I enrolled in a PhD program at the University of Wisconsin in Madison in history. And uh, this book had its genesis as my PhD dissertation. And it kind of draws together uh, threads of interest that I developed during the PhD studies uh, in cultural history and the history of strategy in the United States and, and also my own experience as a naval officer. Uh, in particular, I was interested in where the cultural identity of a mo- modern naval officers came from. You know, wh- where did I come from? So I started pulling strings and, uh, you know, threads of strategy and technology, and it, they landed in the Gilded Age between 1873 and 1898, the years of my book, where we really saw the birth of both the modern Navy and the modern Navy's culture. You know, I've always found it interesting that the Navy's reform initiatives, which, you know, you know, begin in 1873 with the creation of the U.S. Naval Institute, while generally more successful and dramatic than those taking place at the same time in the Army, have really received a lot less attention. You know, it, it seems like the hypothetical proposals that Emory Upton brought forth, you know, we should always remember these were all, all came out posthumously have been privileged by historians over the very real accomplishments by real Admiral Stephen Luce and others. Is that a correct assessment? Well, you're right. And ironically, the Army really started, uh, it was the genesis of all these, a lot of these ideas. And Upton specifically uh, played a role in, in uh, tying to the Navy. Um, when Stephen Luce originally conceived of the idea for a Naval War College, uh, he actually bounced it off Upton, and Upton uh, thought it was a good idea. 
And, uh, and that was in the late 1870s, but it took another five or six years before uh, Luce was able to uh, get some traction in the Navy Department and then push forward with the founding of that institution, the Naval War College, which played a, a pretty pivotal role in this time. And um, ironically, with that, with that act of establishing the War College, the Navy kind of got a jump on the Army and in terms of institutional uh, development in, in ways that would promote reform. Um, and it wasn't until the root reforms of the early 19th or 20th century that the Army kind of was able to catch up, if you will, to the Navy in terms of institutional development. Well, I wonder, too, you know, if it's also not possible that Mahan's fame has something to do with this. I mean, is he a magnet for attention, drawing unfairly from other reforms? Uh, well, he, he is, uh, especially looking in hindsight. Um, but, but at the time, um, Mahan really hadn't established his reputation as uh, as a naval historian and a reformer, and you know, and that sort of thing. That didn't really come till uh, gain momentum till the uh, mid. 1890s. So there's about 10 years there when he's kind of in a formative uh, stage uh, under the tutelage of Luce. And actually, Luce was a reformer from the get-go. Um, and, and Mahan was just a, an evil officer trying to do his job, not too happy about it either. And uh, he didn't get these insights until he actually uh, began to prepare his Naval War College lectures. And then it kind of took off from there. So Mahan was one of of uh, dozens of naval intellectuals and visionaries that were in this dialogue at this time in the 1880s and early 1890s, but he was just one name among among many at, at this point. He would emerge later as being kind of a superstar, and that's how we remember him today, but, but it didn't start out that way. Right. Well, again, I'm not trying to beat up on Alfred Thayer Mahan or, or privilege him over much, but he's such a, you know, a titan when you look at the development of the modern United States Navy. And, you know, one of my former guests, uh, Benjamin Armstrong, you know, has given him a great deal of credit for, you know, how he remains a catalyst for naval thought even today. But what I find remarkable about your book is, just as you said, you know, we have to put Mahan in the context as one of a number of very talented naval thinkers who all serve together. You know, I, I think it's very tempting for laypersons and scholars to settle on him as this one personality who defines the institution of their interest. You know, you, you, I, I think that, you know, your book is excellent in that it frames change within the Navy as part of the larger progressive movement in American society and being therefore larger than just one man. The question then follows. How difficult was it for you cognitively to make that leap? I mean, were you surprised as you, you followed the course of the Navy during these years, or did you anticipate that? Well, I think, you know, like everyone else, I grew up knowing a hand about his name above all, even more than Luce and, and others. But I somehow was able to set that aside when I started my research, and I really didn't know how Mahan was going to plug into the story. I think one of the things that happened is I, I, I started in the early 1870s. I actually started in the uh, in my research in the years right after the Civil War, and other names uh, kind of came to light 
in that process. And then as I moved forward into uh, the 1880s and 1890s, I, I already had a pretty good handle on all these other voices. And so when I finally came to Mahan, he enters the story uh, around 1885. Um, there was already a, a pretty a lot of momentum happening in terms of strategic thinking and, and, and that sort of thing. And actually in the book, I call it the strategical awakening. And that's really the time from the early 1870s to early 1880s when uh, a number of naval officers began to think about strategy in ways they had not before and, uh, and, and began to talk with each other about that in forums like the Naval Institute Proceedings and, and other publications. And in meetings, for the Naval Institute used to have meetings and they would talk about papers and things like that. And so these ideas got out there and they got some, they got some, uh, the light of day, so to speak. And you can kind of trace the development of the thinking through that time period uh, up until the moment that Mahan enters the picture. But he had the benefit of all this prior discussion as he was doing his own studies and, and uh, developing his own lectures for the Naval War College. And part of the reason that he did that is because the War College was was not well-staffed in these days. And there were times when it was just him and one other person might be the permanent faculty of the school. So a lot of this fell on his shoulders. So uh, it was a fortunate, uh, you know, he was the right guy in the right place at the right time, fortunate for him and, and, and for us, arguably. But, uh, right, he, he was part of this larger context. I kind of think of it as, as cloud sourcing, you know, cloud sourcing ideas on strategy in, in uh, Gilded Age form. Well, let's turn back to the beginning of the story. Now, you say you started right after the American Civil War. How embarrassingly outclassed was the United States Navy a decade after the Civil War? Well, it, a decade after, it was just beginning to feel its, its pain, I would say. Uh, the Navy came out of the Civil War as being, if not the, the most powerful Navy in the world, it was certainly uh, it was number two after the British. We had almost 700 ships. Uh, many were steam powered. Uh, many were solely powered by steam, no sail. And, uh, and it was high tech. You know, the monitor, the monitor class of warships was state of the art for, for those years. And uh, so we had the most modern, the largest, most powerful, well-trained experienced Navy in the world in 1865. Uh, by the early 1870s, that Navy had dwindled to a handful of uh, cruisers, about 40 cruisers, give or take some, uh, basically plying the, the world's waterways to protect and promote U.S. commerce. And therein lies kind of the story of, of why and how that happened, you know, why the Navy shrank. And it had to do with missions. And, and it's what the Navy was principally designed for during much of the 19th century. Well, it's not just a case, I think, of, of technology, a mission, too. I mean, there's a superannuation crisis within the Navy as well, isn't there? Right. Well, there's a lot of officers. Um, what happened is that during the war, the Navy expanded, as you would expect, as it mobilized. Uh, they brought in a lot of a, a lot more personnel, enlisted and officers. And as the war ended, um, Congress basically mandated that uh, a lot of these officers, these volunteer officers that had distinguished themselves, should uh, remain on active duty. So that contributed to this glut of, of junior officers that really took a generation to clear out. So promotions are very slow. There was a joke about how 
uh, someone could graduate from the Naval Academy, uh, proceed through his career uh, as a lieutenant and be, you know, promote to lieutenant. And then a generation later, he's still standing to watch as a lieutenant alongside his son, who was born, graduated from the Naval Academy, got promoted to lieutenant during that whole, during this, the, his young lifespan. So uh, it, it was not unusual to go for a couple decades uh, in the lieutenancy, so to speak, until uh, vacancies opened up. Because back then it was a promote by seniority system. So you're not going to be promoting until someone ahead of you retires or dies. Right. Just as in the Army, no room for right. mavericks, more or less. But coming back to the, the idea of progressivism writ large, you, know, you also make a point that these Navy officers – that we see coming in after the Civil War, you know, they're of a different breed than the so-called national progressives who would become interested in crafting responses largely to domestic changes and dislocations in American society. How so? Obviously, the the Navy, the naval progressives are focusing on, on naval issues, but they really share the same intellectual roots with the national progressives you're referring to. And by that, I mean small p progressivism. And there's different, there's elements that went into that. Uh, for example, um, the use of, of expertise and credit, you know, basically you, you grow these expertise, they get educated, credentialed, uh, networked, and they apply themselves to solving problems. In the case of the national uh, progressives, it's more social problems and political problems. In terms of the Navy, it's strategic problems. And also uh, technological problems. So you have the expertise. You have uh, the second element is use of the scientific method. And I don't mean I don't mean running experiments. I mean basically critical inquiry, fact-based inquiry. You're trying to gather facts to answer questions and come up with with answers. Another element of small p progressivism is a, a habit of mind that emphasizes perpetual adaption and adjustment as conditions change. In later jargon, we would call that continuous improvement or uh, agile thinking. I think the Undersecretary of Navy used that word uh, last year. Well, this was uh, intellectual adaptation and agility was a big part of of the small p progressivism. And then finally, we had uh, the notion of cooperative problem solving, where groups of officers kind of goes back to this cloud sourcing idea, where groups of officers would work together to address issues that came up in strategy and technology and other areas, organizational issues and, and that sort of thing. And, uh, and finally, the, the, there is this ethos of efficiency that kind of permeated this whole process. You know, how can we be more efficient? How can we do the job better? How can we make optimal use of our resources? So that, was, that kind of forms this progressive ideology that informed uh, Navy strategic thinkers, Navy uh, technological thinkers, at this time, just as it was beginning to inform people that were starting to grapple with with uh, social problems. I mean, this is the era where we saw political science, social science uh, was born at the same time. Now, what's interesting about the Navy model of this is that it actually anticipates the the wider surge of progressive era development that kind of seized the U.S. in, uh, in the early 1900s. So it's it's we're talking 10 to 20 years ahead of that bow wave. So they're, it's, it's kind of ironic because we don't think of military institutions always as being particularly uh, forward thinking. But in this case, they really were. They were they were anticipating the, the, the wider trend in the United States. 
Yeah, I, I absolutely agree. I mean, my own earlier work was looking at the Army Medical Department and, you know, its role in creating public health institutions that and, and systems that would be adopted by the domestic uh, civilian sure. public health world. And, you know, nobody really thinks of that. You know, you, you present all of this, you know, I, I, what I enjoy about this. I mean, we're looking at competing reforms. We're looking at, or not competing reforms, but rather collaborative reforms that are pursu- being pursued at the same time, rather than tired, you know, studies or, or tired metaphors of old guard versus young Turk style change. If we're looking at the paths to reform themselves, what, what kind of parallels are taking place at the same time? And is there one that would outclass the other? So um, within the Navy, you know, you, you brought up a good point. It's not old guard versus young Turks, really, what's going on. I mean, to a certain extent, you could say, yeah, that was going on in the 1870s. But by the 1880s, there weren't too many old guard people left, and they were not influential. Even uh, some of the the uh, the more conservative officers, leaders like uh, David Dixon Porter, kind of changed his tune uh, as time went on, and uh, the need it became evident within the, the service that something needed to be done to renew and reform the Navy. Um, so he became a bit of a champion of these early reformers like Luce. But so what grew up in the Navy were were kind of these two what I call cultures of progress. And I, I borrow that term from historians of of, um, of education and other types of progressive development in in the United States at this time. And these two uh, cultures of progress, I call in the book, I call them mechanism and strategy. And and really, what mechanism is about, it's it's officers who focused on technological solutions, and to them. The ability to uh, operate, to design, construct, and operate modern technology was was seen as the the most important priority. So when it came to certain policy decisions like officer education and uh, allocating uh, budget resources, they privileged technology. And then we had this other school of thought led by Luce and Mahan and others that privileged strategy. And, and that was a more holistic approach. So instead of asking questions about how do we run the ship or how do we operate these these systems on the ship, they're asking questions about what are we going to do with this stuff? And we're building, there's this great line um, that Mahan uh, put out at when, when I think it was in 1888 Naval War College class. He says, you know, now that we have a fleet coming, a modern fleet coming, because it was under construction at that point, what will we do with it? And that's really the fundamental question. And so these officers kind of had a, a wider perspective. They valued uh, humanistic education, history, uh, international law, those types of things, uh, as well as the technological side. And they were arguing for for an officer corps that could have those types of wider strategic insights, which would translate into in, in practice, would translate into strategic studies, strategic plans you know, ideas on what we will do with the Navy in, in fulfilling its mission. And so there was a, a clash between these two cultures of, um, of progress. Uh, interestingly enough, you know, many officers, I, some officers kind of gravitated to one or the other more or less. 
but there were many officers that, that embraced both cultures. And, uh, and so they got along in general, but when it came to allocating scarce budget resources, they often didn't get along. And, uh, and that's where we saw this, what I call the culture wars of the 1880s and 1890s, where these were two competing visions of, for primacy over the Navy's future and over its budget. Well, yeah, I, I hear that, and I, I, you know, I find it fascinating. And I, I think back to Brian McAllister Lynn's work, uh, his 2009 book, The Echo of Battle, The Army's Way of War, where you know he, he looks at the Army and identifies three distinct threads of officer culture, you know, guardians, managers, and heroes, as he labels them that promote change at different times. Now, I don't want to apply his methodology or approach to yours. I mean, I think it's, it's, they're two different works, but I find the parallels really interesting. You know, and he argues that these three groups would exchange institutional prominence over the 20th century. And I think the, the, the point I want to focus on is, do you see a similar interaction between your engineers and your 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 warriors within oh, the absolutely. Navy, or are they finding a way to share this? Absolutely, and in fact, when I was starting out with this project, I I read Lynn, and at first I tried to apply his categories to the Navy, but in the end, it just not surprisingly, it didn't quite fit what I was seeing in the evidence. So that's where I came up with the the warrior engineer uh, moniker, if you will, um, which is a departure, you know, historically through much of the 19th century that uh, the uh, the Navy really, its primary mission was commerce, protection, and promotion. Uh, in fact, when there was a war, they had to build a whole different Navy because the Navy, that the Peace Navy, the, the Commerce Navy was not adequate for just about any kind of national emergency. So you see a pattern through the 19th century, the War of 1812, the War with Mexico, and especially the Civil War, where they kind of, the, the, the Peace Navy was completely eclipsed by a much larger, more powerful force designed just to fight that war. After the war, they disbanded that larger war navy, and we revert to this Peace Navy, which was largely around 40 cruisers, initially sail power. When steam power came in in the 1840s, they started putting steam engines on them, but steam was auxiliary and uh, they were still fundamentally, uh, I'd like to look at the constitution, you know, old Ironsides, wooden, wooden ship, uh, smooth bore, broadside cannon, sail power. And, and in the 1870s, early 1870s, you could say most of the U.S. fleet was all those things with the addition of an auxiliary steam engine. So the technology had not changed very much, but that was perfectly fine for a commercial mission. And Lance Buell talks about that in, in a couple of different works, the this Navy for Commerce. And, and he's right on that. And, and it's not until that Navy begins to change due to technological advances, due to a, a changing world situation, that, that when we see policymakers need to, to develop a response, uh, it's not until that change that we see the Navy culture begin to change. And the, the product of that change is what I call the warrior engineer, which is a kind of a hybrid of strategist and engineer. And going forward after the period of my book, if you look at how the, the profession develops, it's still this warrior engineer idea, but they flip-flop. Sometimes officers seem like, one generation of officers may seem more like engineer warriors than warrior engineers. And, uh, and we see this flip-flop a couple times 
in, in the over the next hundred years, similar to what Lynn talks about in his book. Well, there's another traditional view of American history that places the Navy front and center. And then in this case, in, in the nation's drive for imperial possessions, just at the point your book comes to an end. And, you know, as you say, it said, you know, you're a Wisconsin scholar. So I'm not surprised to see William Adams yeah, and, yeah. and Walter the <laughs> Beaver yeah, come to the fore here. They set up the idea of this imperial preparation thesis. But you do take issue with that. I do. Um, You know, there I was following the evidence. And what I saw, I mean, sure, from 1898 on, yes, we have a Navy uh, largely for empire. Although I I also would argue that that Navy in 1898, after the immediately following the war with Spain, was ill-prepared for imperial duties. It was not designed for that. And that kind of substantiates a bit my argument that the Navy, that the, the, the new Navy that was given birth in starting in the mid 1880s, really 1883-ish up until the eve of the, maybe 1895 or a little later, that Navy was not a Navy designed for empire. That was a Navy designed for defense. And I came to that conclusion after scrupulously uh, reviewing the congressional debates of the time, you know, what were the arguments that uh, proponents of the new Navy were using to convince their fellow legislators to uh, vote appropriations for these new ships? Um, and it was a language of national defense and um, not empire. And, and in these are times that where there was a lot of debate about U.S. as an empire, should we become one or should we not? A lot of anti-imperial feeling. Now, ironically, if you look at the Cleveland administrations, which were very much anti-imperial, as you recall, you know, Cleveland shut down a number of, of projects that would have expanded uh, U.S. possessions overseas uh, while he was in office. And, you know, he was anti-imperial, but it was his administration where probably two thirds or more of these new ships were uh, appropriated and, and construction began. So it was very much a Cleveland administration Navy. Um, and again, the, the one thing that everyone could, could, could agree upon is defense, that you know, there was a sense that America was becoming more vulnerable, uh, partly because of uh, technology was shrinking distances and uh, to power, the power centers of Europe in particular, and partly because the U.S. was itself kind of stepping from a role as a regional power in the Western Hemisphere to a world power. And there was their aspirations to get out there. Uh, and, and become more involved in world affairs, largely driven by commerce at the time, but also political ambitions. And, you know, kind of a more extreme group were the imperialists who thought we should join the race for empire that Europe had been involved in for, for really centuries. Uh, but I think most people didn't like that idea, uh, and it didn't really happen until we kind of got an empire by accident uh, when we fought Spain. So... All the evidence shows showed me, at least, that defense was the one issue that everyone could agree on. And the votes that were needed to sustain this naval re- renewal were most of those people were thinking oh, the nation needs to be defended. And keep in mind that prior to the mid-1880s, the Navy had been designed and, and uh, deployed and organized for this commercial mission, the Peace Navy mission, the commerce mission. 
during the only time we had a war need was during war. So this was a pretty big change in the 1880s where we had a secretary of the Navy, William Whitney, uh, in the first Cleveland administration who says we need a real Navy, a war Navy that can fight these other other naval powers, you know, kind of a peer to peer type of situation. Uh, unlike now, we're the status quo. Back then, we were the rising power, and we saw that we couldn't do that with a Navy constructed of wood and sail and broadside cannons. So that was a big impetus for this this new technology and this thinking, this new thinking about strategy. Well, I wonder too. I mean, what effect is there of domestic priorities or domestic considerations behind the building of the new tech, you know, sure. the new steel Navy. Now I'm thinking, you know, as we're in the, the Cleveland administration, particularly the second term, you know, the, the country is thrown into a tremendous economic panic and there's very little that the federal government could do to relieve it, except perhaps submitting orders for new ship construction. I mean, is is that a factor? I, I don't well, know if they really kind of. That's kind of a, a, a FDR type of uh, idea that yeah, we'll build ships and give jobs. I'm not sure if they were thinking that so much. I know that uh, the it was pretty ambitious by the the early 1890s. Uh, momentum had really bipartisan momentum had picked up uh, on the new fleet, and when the the panic hit in the 1890s, it slowed things down. They they had to. They made choices to slow down the the pace of constructing battleships, for example, uh, because of that. So it kind of had a negative impact in that regard. Um, but I also think it 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 contributed to uh, it, these feelings of uncertainty and in in uh, in, in uh, you know kind of losing the 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 anchor of of society that that uh, Robert Weeby talks about, and and so you know fear kind of entered the the national psyche. You know, large, the fear of the unknown, and uh, and so that might have fueled some of the support for a powerful, more powerful navy because we didn't know what we're going to be up against going forward. So it's kind of interesting the parallels to today, actually, in that in terms of you know fear, they did fear fear at that point, and, and I think that might have had a, an impact. And but as far as using um, the navy as a a source of jobs, I. I Outside the legislators that had shipyards in their district, and that was this whole other thing going on at the time where. Um, and those were largely northern districts, yeah. too. We don't have the major, you know, southern shipyards. Right, yet. right, right. Correct. So um, not we didn't. The, the, the shipyards were mostly in the northeast at that point. You're right. And um, and so those legislators were always pushing for kind of pork barrel projects. Um, and there was a big movement. This was part of a wider movement to clear, to, to, uh, clear out corruption in the government. Um, you know, the, the shipyards are seen as hotbeds of corruption. And as just as they're doing things like civil service reform, we're creating a professional diplomatic corps along with professional army and Navy. Uh, there's legislation being passed to clean up the shipyards and, and make them, uh, less political uh, institutions. But I think that as far as the jobs going to uh, help alleviate economic distress, that was mainly something that people in those districts were, were focused on. I'm not saying others weren't, but I, I, it certainly wasn't at the scale of the New Deal and some of the policies 
the shipbuilding policies of FDR in the early 1930s. Well, you know, just as in the Army, you know, a lot of the focus on change in, in the Navy has focused on the influence of the line. That is to say, those officers and, and those associated with the combat edge of the institution. I want to ask about the staff branches, though. I mean, is there a role played by officers serving in the judge advocacy uh, group, in the medical bureau, in logistics and supply? in the creation of this new Navy? There is a role. Um, certainly, like, Supply Corps hadn't been, you know, the, the, the kind of proto-Supply Corps was there. Um, I'm not sure when the Judge Advocate General C uh, was established, but, um, you know, there were other staff, doctors, chaplains, that sort of thing. They're there. They've been there since really the mid-19th century, but the big one that was having that had the biggest impact was the engineer corps, and by that we mean propulsion engineers, steam power for ships. Right. And uh, in 1840, the Navy established an engineer corps, and then uh, which uh, at first was very small, and uh, and during the Civil War, with so many steam powered ships, and and really what was regarded as as a pretty big success for the U.S. Navy coming out of that war and, and, and the engineers, their reputation had heightened, their stature had had risen within the, the fleet and uh, they began to agitate for more privileges because they were treated as second-class citizens. It was the line corps that that uh, had the last say, had uh, rank superiority, uh, pay superiority and all that. So these naval officers that were engineers felt that they had contributed so much more and would continue to contribute. So they should have, you know, status equivalent to the line officers. So there was uh, basically a big struggle between those two corps uh, in the 1870s, kind of peaked in the 1870s. Uh, by the 1880s, it was dwindling. And then uh, and then in uh, 1899, uh, there was a decision made to combine the engineer corps and the in the line, and they all became line officers, which was an interesting moment, uh, which is outside the scope of the book. But uh, there were frictions there and and uh, and, and uh, disagreements and hard feelings. But by and large, it was pretty successful. Uh, I think it, it was a pretty successful amalgamation, if you will. It, it strikes me as a natural development, considering the extent to which you know the line component really is is so intertwined and, and dependent upon the accomplishments of the engineer branch. Yeah, you're right. Don't, just to, to fulfill their mission. Absolutely. I mean, the ship's not moving. If, particularly, you know, what's happening in, in uh, around 1890 is that we stopped building ships with sails. So now you're entirely dependent right. to those steam engines to move the ship, you know, in battle and not in battle. So that's a pretty important role. And I think the line corps kind of re- resented a little bit losing that control to, to a certain extent. But there's this other thing going on, too, and uh, you know, which is interesting because in some of the literature on this, they seem to mark the moment of line officers becoming engineers is that Amalgamation Act where they combine the, the Engineer Corps and the Line Corps of 1899. But uh, what I saw, you know, particularly in the 1890s, uh, these line officers were saying things like, hey, we're engineers, you know, and there's and there's some – I have some quotes in the book to talk about that, that, you know, the, the line officers, one guy says, I've got like dozens of electric motors that are in my 
in my division that I'm responsible for in the ship. I'm as much an engineer as those guys down in the propulsion plant. And, and they're right. I mean, the ships, the, you know, modern, these modern steel warships were, were technologically advanced through and through, and, and there's no more sails. So everything you're doing, and there's that much, not that much manpower anymore. It's mostly, you know, steam and, and electricity that's driving your motors and other equipment, your gun, training guns and, and all that. So really, uh, these naval officers have become engineers in many ways, even before the, the line core or the line and the engineers are amalgamated. So when that actually happened, it wasn't so much a revolutionary change as an evolutionary change that largely, you know, acknowledged what was happening already in the Navy. Well, I think it was that saying, too, that, that naval intelligence, in this specific case, the Office of Naval Intelligence and, to a larger extent, the Joint Army-Navy Board, both benefited and promoted reform. But yet, you know, there's something of a lag between the ONI's initial mandate and a strategic analysis and planning mission. Why is that? Well, the original idea behind the, the ONI was uh, was technological, and that we were we were ONI was founded in um, 1882, and just as we're beginning to the process of naval renewal, we're starting to replace those aging wooden cruisers with modern steel, you know, high tech warships. And so we didn't have that technology present in the U.S. We haven't dealt with it in the United States. So O&I, in part, was an effort to gather information from around the world at, on best practices and, uh, and the types of features we would want to include in these this new generation of warships. And that's kind of how it got sold to the powers that be. But some of the people involved with NOI, the, the officers that helped to shape it initially, also had, they were part of this strategical revolution that I mentioned a while back of the 1870s and early 1880s. And they saw a role, you know, once we establish this institution and it's gathering all this information, it doesn't just have to be on technology. We can answer other questions, strategic questions with the information we gather. And so it kind of became a de facto place of strategic studies and eventually strategic planning. And some of the well, the first known strategic plans, uh, peacetime strategic plans that uh, the Navy developed were in O&I in, in 1887-ish, uh, and where we, we, we can actually see plans that were written out. Uh, they're not like strategic plans today, but they're clearly more like strategic concepts, but they were constructed with a particular problem in mind, usually Great Britain. Uh, and what happens if we go to war here? What do we what do we need to do? And, and try to answer those types of questions. So uh, whether by accident or design, O&I becomes a center, kind of the first center for strategic uh, planning in, in the United States. Uh, you know, keep in mind, just like we in the past, we, we had this peace Navy commerce and, you know, to protect and promote commerce. During war, we would ramp up and create a new war Navy. Well, we also didn't think that much about strategy. Well, we didn't think at all about strategy outside of wartime. So, uh, and, and it was frowned upon for naval officers to kind of pursue that, in, that type of intellectual development. Uh, it was considered to be a waste of time. So it was literally a just-in-time Navy and, and with just-in-time strategy, Civil War being a great example. The war breaks out. We create a strategy. The Lincoln administration creates a strategy board 
and they kept it in place for four months, kind of hammered out what we what we call the Anaconda Plan and the blockade that was part of that. And then they disbanded it for the rest of the war. We didn't really have any strategy making body uh, in existence because they didn't think we needed it. But uh, coming out of the Civil War, there were certain naval officers, loose in particular, that saw what the lack of strategic thinking and planning did for the Navy. Uh, the, the best example of that is the Navy's attempt to capture Charleston uh, throughout the war. It didn't succeed until Sherman took it from the rear. And uh, there's this there's actually uh, there was a moment during the war when uh, Luce was uh, commanding officer of a of a ship that was in the I think it's the Savannah River that separates Georgia and South Carolina. He was covering Sherman's crossing, the crossing of his army, and they would have conferences and. Sherman said, you know, loose, you Navy guys have been trying to get into Charleston all this time and you haven't any luck. Watch me do it in a week without firing a shot. And he did. So loose in his memoirs commented on that, you know, that moment got my attention. And that was the genesis of, of my interest in strategy that eventually resulted in the found establishing of the Naval War College. Let's take a step back and look at the creation or, or the point at which the Navy commits itself to its battleship and cruiser Navy, you know, which is, I think could be, could be fairly set at the launch of the so-called ABCD flotilla. And for our listeners, that refers to the first three armored cruisers and then the dispatch boat Dolphin, which were launched in 1886. Not just with regards to the small flotilla, but the, the, the growing Navy at large. At what point, is there a consensus over how to use these ships? I mean, were they still intending to use them as, as individual vessels going abroad as, you know, almost as physical representations of the flag and as surrogates for the United States, or was there a different intention taking shape? Well, um, when you talk about showing the flag and, and, you know, representing the United States, that's really a, what we call what what I would call a peace navy mission, and in fact, the first generation of steel warships, the ABCD uh, squadron, um, those were basically peace navy warships uh, that were they were, that adapted new technology. And in fact, if you take a picture, if you look at a picture of of the Boston or the um, Atlanta, the Boston, Chicago. uh, Chicago. If you take a look at those ships alongside uh, the Trenton, which was built 10 years earlier, Trenton being wood, broadside, sail, with some steam power, they they look very similar. I mean, technologically, I mean, there's obviously the ABCD ships are made out of steel. The weaponry is more modern. uh, It's more casemated. It's not so much as a... um, is a broadside, but they still are sail powered. They got full sail rigs. Uh, the steam engines weren't all that powerful. So there, it's more of a, an update of the Peace Navy technology. And the, the vision for them was pretty much that protection and promotion of commerce. And it's not until a few years later uh, in that first Cleveland administration when I think the political leadership begins to understand or begins to perceive a real vulnerability uh, for the United States as we begin to enter a peer-to-peer competition in the world, as technology shrinks the distances between us and the seats of of, uh, maritime power in the world. 
that's the moment where the Navy or the, the political leadership says, wow, we need to have, you know, forget this peace Navy stuff. We need to have a, a, a Navy that's designed uh, for war, designed to take on, uh, you know, peer uh, naval forces, not, uh, you know, small local insurgencies, you know, that are out there, or piracy and that sort of thing. This is a, a war fighting fleet. So we see a shift in mission in the mid 1880s, and this that, this is that navy for defense I was talking about earlier. We need a navy that will right. defend uh, our shores and defend our hemisphere, um, and because these these uh, co- commercial or commerce protecting cruisers don't do that. Um, so that's the next step. We go from this modern this update of older technology for the peace or the commercial mission to an actual you know new ships, new technology designed to fight other navies. And then it's in the early, uh, around 1889, 1890, when the we have a shift of administrations again, where we see uh, the Republicans back coming back in. And that's where the, the battleships, you know, this idea of a battleship Navy really takes hold. But at that moment, remember, uh, Mahan has written his book and it's starting to get his ideas are starting to get out there, not just within the Navy, but within the, the policy, the political leadership as well. Uh, and not too many people, but there's enough people in high places that kind of grasp what he's saying, that they begin to build a Navy that's more in the image of what he uh, he had envisioned. So we have that three-step process ending up, and it takes about a decade, ends up with the battleship Navy. But that's still a Navy primarily for defense. Yes, there were people who thought we could use the Navy to, you know, capture colonies, but they were a minority. Uh, they, right. they, they themselves didn't have enough votes to be able to, to, to vote for to, the, the appropriations for these these ships. So it was a defensive navy, not a, an imperial navy, not yet. That that came later. Right. Well, we you know we're talking about civilian oversight, and you know the impact that the Congress and the Secretary of the Navy has the you know has on modernization. Are there examples of where they obstructed modernization or they, they obstructed change, perhaps to the detriment right. of readiness? Well, it, there, yes, there are. Um, there's kind of two categories here. One is um, due to the uncertainty of where the Navy should go, you know, what kind of technology should we develop, what kind of organization, what kind of education should we, uh, should we embrace for this new Navy? There were disagreements on almost all levels. Uh, over which way to go. And a lot of it fell down along this, what I call the mechanism versus strategy uh, lines that were, that was, those were the, the, the cultures within the Navy that were competing. Each group had its own political allies and uh, there was a back and forth going on as they would vie for, uh, you know, to, to, for supremacy over the Navy's future. So we've got that going on and that, that hindered progress because, uh, you know, debate and, and things like that. It's kind of the normal American political process. Nothing happens fast. So that was one respect. And then there was another group, the second group, uh, which really, it was a minority, but they didn't see any point in having a Navy at all. I mean, they pretty much embraced the, the, the historic position of, you know, we, all we need is a small Navy, uh, a low tech Navy for our commerce. And if we ever have a war, we can build another Navy. So, you know, this Navy that, that started to emerge in the 1880s and 90s was not cheap. And they just felt that, that money could be spent more wisely elsewhere 
not on building this Navy. And so um, sometimes they were able to get enough uh, support that they made you know, certain bills, maybe not the whole the general trend of building ships, but not as many ships and maybe not as quickly as the advocates would have liked because of this type of resistance. And, you know, the U.S. political process is very complex. And basically there's as, if, as many people, as many representatives of you in Congress is, you know, have different interests there. And so, uh, you know, sometimes politics makes strange bedfellows. So you might have people, and a lot of this was just outright partisan politics. I mean, I've seen that where somebody proposes something and it gets voted down, like when the Democrats have a majority in Congress. And then uh, all of a sudden the Democrats uh, have, there's a new administration, for example, proposes the same thing. The Democrats all vote for it. And so a lot of it's just pure and, pure and simple partisan politics. But there's, you know, there's uh, relations with your with various um, uh, constituencies in your home districts. There's the, you know, the pork barrel thing, uh, corruption to a certain extent as well. I mean, it's all that stuff kind of mixes together into this milieu of political decision making. And uh, it just so happens that they got enough critical mass for various reasons, largely because of defense concerns, I argue, um, that they were able to keep building this fleet pretty steadily from 1884 on. Well, this all comes to a head in 1898 with the Spanish-American War. And I, I think the question then is, you know, how do these various threads come together at this particular moment in time? It's not just a case of you know the, the the foresight of of the naval establishment has a fleet ready or squadrons on hand ready to to wage war against a European power. It's not a case of playing catch up, but at the same time, there is this kind of fortuitous nature here. To what extent does this strategic minded culture reinforce with technology? And a professional ethos, I think it's first and foremost the, the issue of operation and process come together just in time, or was it all already there? Well, no, it, it is interesting that it, it, like you say, comes together just in time. You know, for one thing, you know, by 1898, we'd had about 15 years of creating this new fleet. It wasn't a very big fleet, but we didn't have, it was mostly uh, cruisers, both armored and unar unarmored cruisers, with a handful of battleships. It was not a big navy by European standards, but and and again, it was a navy designed for defense in in most most respects. Although that was starting to change after 1895, uh, a little bit, but it was a navy for defense. Just so happened that, that same navy could prove useful against a weak European power like Spain and. When, when I would teach this to my students uh, in naval history class, I would, of course, I would say that, you know, if there was one maritime power that we could take on and have a pretty good chance of defeating in 1898, <laughs> it was Spain. And, and you know, we had the perfect, you know, spark in Cuba. So, you know, so these circumstances kind of came together. And that's not to say there weren't people in the Navy and outside the Navy that envisioned this, you know, that wanted this to happen and push to make it happen all the way from the beginning of, of, of this period of naval renewal. But they were a minority. But due to world events and, and other circumstances, they kind of got what they wanted by, def, you know, be, 
just it just worked out that way. It didn't have to work out that way, but it just did. So it was not a foregone conclusion. Uh, again, most people saw this new navy as a navy for defense, not for defeating the Spanish Empire. Now, so you've got that going on. Uh, the actual technology and you know the firepower, if you will, the modern firepower. The other thing we have going on goes back to this development of strategic planning. You know, starting out with the kind of the incipient strategic plans of the of the, at O and I in the 1880s, with the uh, as as the Naval War College became more entrenched and uh, institutionally uh, sank its roots, uh, it took uh, it took up a process of of strategic planning as well mainly as an educational tool. Uh, it was one of these things, we're going to use this to educate our officers and strategic concepts and planning. And, oh, by the way, the end result of this process, with back then they did summer classes, so it would be a summer session. The end of the session, they produce a plan that we can put on the shelf if we ever need it. And initially, these plans were all directed against Britain, a possible attack by Great Britain against our eastern seaboard. That's Those were the first set of problems. But by the mid-1890s, we're starting to see kind of the interest widen and uh, not so much in the classwork, but in the, um, you know, the, the faculty of the Naval War College and others and people who graduate from the Naval War College start to think about Spain as the, uh, the revolution in Spain gains momentum, the, the latest revolution in Spain. And they're saying that this could be a, um, a flashpoint. So they start to develop plans for uh, for potential flashpoints in the real world. Uh, and so Spain is was something that was starting, in, I think, 1894, 1895. We're starting to see various people write plans or develop plans, strategic plans for a war with Spain. And we start to see that getting debated between different groups. So by the eve of war, uh, that process of drafting debate, the Navy as an institution is really grappled with the problems of a war with Spain, principally in the Caribbean, but also in the Philippines. And so when the war happens, they don't actually take the, sh the plan off the shelf and use it, but the concepts are, are something that the planning board that the president or the, the secretary of the Navy uh, appoints to kind of manage the war. Uh, some of these people were involved with that planning process leading up to the war. So there's uh, just kind of like we hear we talk about war plan arms for World War II. And in this case, uh, there's not a lot that they hadn't thought about, at least in some way, uh, before the war. I, mean, I guess there was a lot they hadn't thought of, but there was a lot they had thought about. So uh, the Navy was a bit more prepared strategically to, to get into that conflict than, say, the Army was. And so, yeah, that came together at that moment as well. You know, it's all just so long ago. You know, it, it's almost a, an apocryphal story in, in the context of the modern contemporary Navy. How does this story of the progressive Navy provide inspiration for the current day? You know, what lessons should be drawn from by today's naval establishment and officer cadre as we move deeper into the 21st yeah, century? Yeah, I've been thinking a lot about that lately. And, you know, think about the research I did in the book, and I've come up with a couple of, you know, some ideas to consider in answer to your question. You know, part of this was this, this reform movement wasn't just about technology and, and it wasn't just about organization and just about mission. It was about culture. So the mindsets of the officer corps in particular, that's what I study, you know, stuff's going on in the enlisted ranks as well, but I'm looking at the officer corps in, in this case, you know, they're, they're changing their perspective. They're changing their point of view. They're starting to think about new technologies 
and new strategies that they had not thought of before. Um, they, matter of fact, they had not thought about strategy at all. It was not part of the, the culture of the Peace Navy to think about strategy. Now they're thinking about it. So as we see technology develop and we see the world change, you know, we're entering a period of, of peer-to-peer competition that we haven't seen in, in, in several generations. They were entering a period of peer-to-peer competition as well. And, and so they, they really understood that things had to change. And the changes were driven primarily by naval officers themselves. It was a bottom-up phenomenon. You know, it wasn't like blue ribbon panels saying we got to do this and that. These were officer, individual officers crowdsourcing together, coming up with with um, with ideas, working closely with the political leadership. Which it was interesting because um, in many cases there were very close relationships between the Navy professionals and the policy makers, both in the legislature and the executive. Part of it was this was due to ties of friendship and family in ways that may not be possible today. We have a much bigger Navy, much bigger country. Um, people don't we don't know everybody the way we did back in those days. But still, you know, those close relationships made a big difference in reforming and renewing the Navy and which which helped to shape those cultural changes. So there are some lessons there. Another one is that this was a conflicted phenomenon and that the reform and renewal and the culture change was was built on competing visions for the Navy's future, you know, kind of fighting it out in this culture war. Um, so I asked, you know, I'm thinking about what are the, the visions today? What are the cultures surrounding us? Do they exist? You know, and maybe in, in the end, they probably came up with the best answer. It wasn't just going to be about technology. It wasn't going to be just about strategy. It was this hybrid warrior engineer who's a strategist and an engineer at the same time. Um, and even through all the changes of the, of the uh, 20th century, you know, strategy never went away. Obviously, engineering never went away. But strategy was always there, even whether it was, in, you know, engineer, warrior or warrior, engineer, uh, strategist, engineer, engineer, strategist. It was always there somewhere in Navy culture. So as we go forward, you know, what is this? The questions I would ask is that um, how are te- technological and strategic imperatives reshaping naval culture going forward? And, and, and actually military culture, not just the Navy, but the armed forces. You know, jointness is, is a culture shift. Uh, what other factors are affecting that? And then the, the other, the next question is how we want it to shift. You know, these naval officers in the, in the Gilded Age drove the shifts and they're based on ideas they thought the Navy needed to, to adapt. So, you know, how do we want it to shift? And then the last question, which is kind of answering your question was a question is how do we, how can our understanding of the past help us to shape this future naval, this future military culture? You know, maybe some of these ideas, bottom-up phenomenon, close working between Navy professionals and policymakers, and the idea of conflict between different groups. Maybe those are things that can inform today's uh, efforts to deal with today's problems. Well, let's move on to our final questions. You know, we have two questions that we, we normally ask of our guests. First... What are you looking forward to as your next project? Well, I have two projects in mind. One is um, an idea I'm toying around with right now is you're familiar with the 21st century series that uh, B.J. Armstrong edits. I, he's been on your, your show here. Yeah, yeah, yeah I know so B.J. very well. And, uh, yes, I am familiar with so it. So 
uh, we've been talking about the idea of a 21st century loose that may or may not come to pass. Uh, I recently started a new job out here in Wisconsin, so that's been consuming much of my time the last few months. But it's something that I have on my short list of things I, I may go after at some point, uh, hopefully sooner than later. So that's that's one project. And there's another one um, looking at William Leahy, who, as you probably know, was our first five star off uh, military leader. Arguably the first, uh, well, he was the first chairman of the Joint Chiefs, uh, first national security advisor, maybe along with Harry Hopkins to Franklin Roosevelt. So he was a pretty prominent uh, character uh, in, in the mid 20th century. And uh, I've done some work on him uh, already. I wrote my master's thesis on him. And, and one of the things I'm interested in is um, his role in national policy and naval policy, working with FDR during his time as CNO. So we're talking about the late 1930s. And, uh, and you know, how much did he do to ramp up you know, to create the fleet that that uh, arrived in 1942 and, and, you know, started the fight in, in the Pacific and in, in, in the Atlantic as well. So looking at that relationship and what it teaches us about civil-military relations, some of these things I, I just mentioned for, uh, you know, going forward based on progressives in Navy Blue, kind of pulling the thread on some of those themes and seeing where they where they take me. Well, I look forward to a Leahy book. I mean, he's, he's so often overshadowed by the other personalities around him, both within the Navy and, and within national politics and the other services. The second question is, what are you reading or watching now that our listeners may want to check out for well, themselves? I'm actually reading uh, Learning War by Trent Hone, and uh, I'm enjoying that book. It's actually part of the same Naval Institute series as mine. It came out a month after mine. And uh, in, very, in a lot of ways, our works kind of bookend each other. So it's really exciting to kind of to be able to go through, you know, and mine his ideas, think about how they connect to what, what I've been doing. And, uh, and, and that's a lot of fun. And, and I, I enjoy that. And uh, in terms of watching, well, uh, I'm, I've been, I'm been binge watching uh, The Expanse the last few days, which uh, it's a it's sci-fi show. I love science fiction. It's particularly well done, and, uh, and, and so that's kind of my, my, my pastime at the moment. Well, that's great. Yeah, Scott, thanks, thanks so much for taking the time to talk with me today. I really appreciate it. Well, Bob, thanks for, for having me on. And to all of our listeners, on behalf of New Books in Military History, this is Bob Wintermute. Thank you for listening.